Hi. Welcome. To? Time and Crime. <laughs> on the rocks. <laughs> but our drink is not on the rocks today. Our drink is shaken. Okay. Not stirred. Shaken, what are we? not stirred. Do you know what we're drinking? It's called The Millionaire, but that's all that I know other than what I saw you make. Okay, so it is The Millionaire, and I found out there's a number of versions of this cocktail. I think this one's number three. And tell me why you didn't choose one of the others. They didn't look as good as this one. Oh. So this has got two ounces <laughs> of bourbon, three quarter ounce Grand Marnier, one half ounce Pastis Ricard, which is a licorice flavored beverage. Right. So I used absinthe because it's also licorice flavored, and I have a lot of it. And I didn't want to buy or look for Pastis Ricard. Oh, absolutely. But we could have just skipped the licorice altogether. Uh, it's got a half ounce of grenadine. Okay. Half ounce lemon juice and an egg white. An egg white. Shaken vigorously and poured into, strained into a cocktail glass and topped with nutmeg. Okay. So I'm drinking a licorice cream colored drink with an egg white and licorice. And nutmeg. I like nutmeg. So Not licorice or egg whites. Shall but. we try it? Yeah. All right. If we must. Down the hatch. Okay, it has like a head on it. I love the nutmeg on it, actually. The nutmeg is very beautiful. Mine has like a little bulbous head on it. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. And yeah, it's gross. Um, if you're a millionaire, you would have to pay me all your money to drink a whole one of these. Why would you? Oh, try number two did not get any better. In fact, that one was worse. Uh, that try was slimy. I can't do it. And I'm now drinking a drink of my beer. Yeah, I can't do it. Sorry for all the millionaires out there that are forced to drink this every day to keep their million. It's probably like a voodoo or like some sort of witchcraft where if you want a million dollars, you have to drink one of these every day. I'll be poor. I'll be poor too. <laughs> okay, so not one of our favorites. Not anywhere near one of our favorites. Okay, but... My story is still one of my favorites. So what are you telling me about? Okay. I, my story was obviously millionaire, but it was inspired by a toy that both you and I had as children and we talked about. Simon Says? No. Better. Um, another friend of mine had the same toy too because I found out when I posted on Facebook when I accidentally disintegrated him in my dryer. But, so I had this yellow bear that had a blue and white tank top on. It was a blue and white striped tank top and a little patch that said Sunny. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yet? Yes. Where'd you get him? I don't know. Oh my God. How can you not know where you got him? Probably from a grandparent. I don't know. Well, them. you did get it from a grandparent, but you got him from the grandparent's bank. That's right. He was a giveaway prize for opening an account at the Crocker Bank. I also had the two Crocker Spaniels. I think I only had one Crocker Spaniel, but I had two Sunny Bears. So... Number one of my sunny bears I found when my children were very little. And I thought, oh, I'm going to wash him for my children because, you know, why wouldn't you save one of your childhood toys? Put him in the washing machine and he passed away all inside my washing so machine. So you basically cremated one of your cherished childhood toys. I cremated toys. one of my cherished childhood toys in my front loader washing machine and then had to scoop him out with my hands and it was disgusting. So from now on, I always put my stuffed animals in a pillowcase when I wash them. Mom tip from me to you. That way when they disintegrate, it's all still there in the pillowcase. Right. So it doesn't ruin my washing machine, just my childhood, cherished childhood memory. But so I've shown the girls um, Crocker Bear, Sunny, 
number two, but I have not attempted to watch him, so I don't know. So I'm actually really, I don't know anything about this story. Okay. He's kind of a goofy guy. I mean, he's not a goofy guy, but he's got some weird quirks, and he did a lot of things for California that we really don't even think about other than. Crocker Art Museum? Is that a relation? Brother. Wow. Younger brother, who he gave a job to. So he was born, maybe he was older. I don't know. Anyway, he, I think Crocker Museum was older. So our guy, who is um, Charles Crocker, was born in Troy, New York on September 16th, 1822. His parents were Eliza and Isaac Crocker. He, I believe, was one of four children, and they moved to Indiana when he was 14 to farm. He was actually forced to leave school at 12 to help the family make ends meet, which is kind of sad. So he's in Indiana. In 1845, he had worked at all these different little odd jobs, and he decided, I'm going to open my own iron forge. So he opens his own iron forge, and he's pretty successful at it. And he takes his extra money, and he invests in the railroad, because the railroad was just starting to be a thing then. Smart move. Mm -hmm. So something that we've talked about in a previous podcast happened in California, I'm going to say the gold rush. The gold rush. So in 1850, young Crocker takes his money that he's invested in the railroad and his iron forge, and he sets out to California to make his fortune. And guess what happens? He fails. Oh, like everybody else. Like everybody else. But he was smart enough to determine to see, oh, hey, all these guys need stuff. So I'm going to open a store. Yes, and sell them stuff. So he opens a dry goods market and... Pretty soon, his little dry good market turns into three dry good markets, and he's doing really well. Which, again, also like Levi Strauss, because he opened a dry goods store prior to making his Levi's denim. His Levi's, cool. So he um, is doing really well, and he goes back to Indiana to marry his childhood sweetheart, who, nice part of the story, was his only wife. He never, she didn't die in childbirth like so many others, and he spent his entire life with her. So that was nice. So they moved back to California and they settle in Sacramento and they proceed to have three sons and one daughter. But meanwhile, he's trucking right along. Um, In 1856, he becomes interested in politics and he helps to found the New Republican Party in California. And that's at a time when the Democrats just, they were running the show. They had everything. So he is working for this party, this political party, and he, (laughs) the, the, Article that I read actually described it this way. He unexpectedly found himself elected alderman. (laughs) (laughs) So now he's got a political office and he meets some friends. He meets Mark Hopkins, Collis Huntington, who own a hardware store. They're partners. And um, another little man who has a grocery store. And, you know, he was just Leland Stanford. No big deal in California. Just this guy who has a grocery store with his brother. Yeah. I don't think anyone's heard of him since. No. He did nothing else. Mm Mm-mm. That's sarcasm, folks. So he, um, they become, they become fast friends. Like these four, they just do everything together. And he and Stanford eventually run for office purposely this time in 1857, and they both lose. But the foursome decide that they want to stay in politics, and so they support John Fremont for president with the slogan "Freedom, Fremont, and the Railroad." They're they're becoming interested in the railroad. They're becoming invested in the railroad, but. As we know, since we do not have a President Fremont, he failed. He did. Um, anyway, so he 
still interested in railroads, still is supporting railroading. So he's just trucking along in his little business and politics. And one day he and his buddies go to this presentation by this guy named Theodore Judah. And he has an idea for a railroad company. So they want to create a railroad on this coast that will meet a railroad from the other coast and make a railroad that goes all the way across California so people don't have to come across on a covered wagon. The transcontinental railroad? Yes, the transcontinental railroad. I can suggest a spot where they can meet. There's a story behind that. So anyway, yeah, great idea. Let's let's do it. So they formed the Central Pacific Railroad and the four boys became known as the Big Four. So the whole plan was, you know, to connect the east to the west so people don't have to croak in covered wagons anymore. So Crocker's official title and job in the company was construction supervisor, and he was president of the Charles Crocker Company subsidiary, which was a subsidiary of Union Pacific Railroad that was formed for the actual building. He was the guy who hired the guys to pound the nails. So this just little anecdote that I read that just kind of tells it, you know, it's just a funny story. So they're building railroads across, oh, you know, the Sierras, and there's snow in the Sierras. So they they were having trouble with the snow, so they buy a bunch of train snow plows, just plow the snow off the track so that they can keep going. Well, these little snow plows are chugging along and they get derailed because there's ice on the tracks because it's, it's the snow. Sierras. Right, it's the Sierras. Like, ask the Donner Party about that. <laughs> right? So they end up building snow sheds to cover their railroad tracks. And it cost $2 million in 1860s That's money. a lot. A lot. So, anyway, that aside, 1863, February 22nd, they're, they're trucking along and they meet the Union Pacific Line in where? Promontory Point, Utah. Promontory Point, Utah. Um, they had a big ceremony for it. They had a golden spike that was made. Do you know there was a more than one golden spike? There was more than one golden spike. Because I've seen one in person. I was with you. You were with me. <laughs> <laughs> so were child one and child two. <laughs> We've seen it. So they have this golden spike. And the golden spike was actually driven in by the guy who was the president of the Union Pacific Railroad. And one other guy. Who was the other guy? I don't... You don't remember? No, I don't remember. Okay, well, he was that guy that we never heard of, Stanford. Oh. Only now he was governor of California. Governor Leland Stanford. Governor Leland Stanford. So he actually continued to Leland's politics. a name they should continue to use. It's Leland's a nice a good name. name. It's a good name. People, name your kids Leland. Do it. So they take turns driving in the stake, and it's a big deal. Telegraph signals go to both ends of the country simultaneously, blah, blah, blah. There's all kinds of theories and myths. But one of the articles I read actually also talked about how they took the spike up because it's gold. And they, yeah, people suck. And there was no scratches or marks on it like would be if a soft metal like gold had been driven into a railroad so it's, tie. it's fake. Fake. It yeah, was probably fake. I was like even thinking gold sounds not safe. No. No, you could not put a, ra- a car, a railroad, like what are tons, they called? Train yeah. across. They call them trains. <laughs> that licorice. Yeah. Woo. That's gotten me. So he's in this railroad. So he's also doing other things. And in 1864, he hires his brother, Edwin Crocker, Crocker Museum guy, 
to be the company's attorney. Which is a great museum if you haven't been. Oh my goodness. So I started out reading about him and he he was kind of cool. He was kind of cool. He was sort of a good guy. I let I didn't talk about him because he had nothing exciting or controversial in his life other so, than they adopted an illegitimate child from another relative. When we chose this topic, I had no idea you would go here. Like I thought really? it, I thought it would for sure be like Howard Hughes or something. Oh no. I want so to So I'm actually really excited. So anyway, Edwin was boring, but he he did do a thing where he represented four escaped slaves and all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was really cool. Oh, he was a good guy, which is good, but just not not the story super interesting. you were looking for, right? So he hires his brother. They keep building. Um, the big four actually start another company and get control of that called the Southern Pacific Railroad, and they build the southwestern part of the second transcontinental railroad and drive in another golden spike in 1881, and that golden spike joined together three railroads. No idea? It's a song. Well, I'm just thinking that Southern Pacific and Union Pacific are still big in the railroad business. Right. But there's a song, the Atchison, Peak and Santa Fe. I think that's the tune. It's probably not. Tell yeah. me I'm wrong. I don't know that song. Okay. You've never heard that song? I think like Judy Garland or somebody sang it in a musical. I've never heard I'm that sure song. I'm wrong. Email me and tell me I'm wrong. Anyway, so they built, they sent another railroad spike there and they named this town after his wife and blah, blah. As they're building the railroad, it takes lots of guys to do this. On the East Coast, they have all of these Irish immigrants coming in and they're doing all the work. But what are they going to do on the West Coast? I think I have an idea. Yes, they've got to get cheap labor here on the West Coast. So Crocker says, hey, I know, let's hire the Chinese. Well, people don't like this. They don't want this. One of his supervisor contractors um, actually says he allegedly screamed at Crocker, I will not boss Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) They do not want them. That can be your quote of the episode. I will not boss Chinese. (laughs) That's the title. I will not boss Chinese. Love it. (laughs) So this guy's not bossing Chinese, but... I'm Boston Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's a good thing he did because they got him really cheap. So 1867, the Sierra Mountains are full of Chinese who are dying. Oh, oh, I mean working for the railroad. It's hard work. It's dirty, dangerous. Once the workers like got all upset and Crocker being the sweet, generous guy that he is, decided that he would raise their wages from $31 to $35 a year. Okay, that sounds worse. A month. Okay. I was trying I'm, to go for the shock value, but yeah. I'm like d- extra thinking it was bad. <laughs> Wasn't that bad. It does get that bad in a minute. But so he's, he's paying them $35 a month. So later on in 1867, in June of 1867, June 25th, and that's important because of what Crocker threatens later. So June 25th, 1867, a group of Chinese on the Sierra Slope just... That's almost the anniversary of Little Bighorn. Oh, cool. By the way. They, um, I went there last year. They just put down their shovels and they're like, nope, nope, not working. Not doing anything else. So two days later, 2,000 more workers joined them in this strike. So Crocker's response, because, you know, before he raised their wages $4 a month, this time he cuts off their food supply. Uh. Yeah, the strike lasted a week. Um, He told them, you have two choices. You can go back to work and receive a small fine 
for the week that you missed of work or immediately by the way or you can continue this silly little strike and i will not pay you for the month of june it was june 25th when they quit working so they worked almost the whole month and they were potentially not going to get paid correct so they went back to work and part of the reason that he was driving them so hard and working them so hard is because he had a side bet with the guy from the union pacific durant for ten thousand dollars as to whose crew could raise lay the most track uh that's a good reason to pretty much commit slavery yes they and they absolutely were they finished the project seven years ahead of schedule because they were both rushing so much to win this bet okay now this i don't have an exception with because you know how much longer it takes things to get built these days oh ridiculous how many years have we been working on the maybe a few little side bets would help (laughs) minus the slavery right minus the you know killing hundreds of chinese people yeah and irish people on the other end but so uh crocker actually won he won by a whopping 10 miles well 10 miles and how many hundreds of people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I did not look up because I just didn't want to have I that don't want to know that I didn't either. want to know that figure I thought that would just be too sad so side drink done sorry for the pause um, oh look it's got a cool cup in it another thing that he was interested in or involved in was real estate and I'm going to talk more about real estate later what a pretty sound. we have to always have a side drink in case our cocktail doesn't taste good okay but i have to say this is the first time that i didn't like it well there was one earlier that we didn't love but we drank but it. we drank it yeah this one if if we could give you view a vision it's separating the more it's sitting here <laughs> not being drank the yeah. more disgusting it looks like the egg white has settled to the bottom because it's gelatinous looking and the and- top part is this ungodly <laughs> color it looks like urine in the middle yes <laughs> it's like egg white at the bottom urine in the middle and like some weird i don't even know vomit color at the top yes it's like some crazy version of a uh, candy corn i don't know it's just gross yeah it's gross. looking um my glasses are pretty um but anyway so he's also involved in real estate and one of the things that we have to thank Mr. Crocker for is the fact that California is the agriculture juggernaut that it is. And Leland Stanford with that too. Yes. They together they came up with the plan for the irrigation that brought the water to California. Of course, we also have them to thank for the giant problem of no water that California has. But California has the fifth largest economy in the world because yes. of agriculture. Yes. Literally the county that we live in, if you eat it, we grow it probably. Um, anyway, so he's in real estate and he's in all of this stuff. And another thing that he gets involved in is banking. He was president of the Wells Fargo Bank for a while only because he bought the most shares. That was in 1869. He was bought out by another guy and lost, or didn't lose, but he gave up that controlling interest. Later on, after he leaves Wells Fargo, he buys a controlling interest in another bank. He buys controlling interest in the Woolworth National Bank. I didn't even know about that bank. Yes, well, you don't know about that bank because after he buys controlling interest in it, he renames it the Crocker Bank and gives it to his son, William. 
I still love my Crocker Spaniels. I know. They're, it's really cute. And I remember going to the Crocker Bank when I was visiting my grandparents in Fort Bragg. It was just like one of the things that we did because I would go for weeks at a time and I was just part of their lives. It's way cooler than the Tri-Counties wine bottle opener that I used this weekend <laughs> as far as a gift. Yes, yes. But it was just one of those fun childhood things. We would go every year when I would visit down to the Crocker Bank and put in... Um, money into my college fund i think i had a savings account from crocker bank too yeah i'll have to ask but i think i did i remember having you know you have those little saving passport things yeah yeah because they wrote things down on paper back then we're old we're old that's the story i gotta tell you <laughs> oh okay. story after this okay so <laughs> crocker bank run by william and crocker bank stayed in business for quite a while um and then it was eventually bought out obviously because we weren't Fargo. born in the 1800s right <laughs> It wasn't taken over by um, Wells Fargo, I think, until almost the 90s, if not in the 90s. That seems right. Yeah. But anyway, so he's got homes in California and a home in New York, and he goes back and forth. He was actually in a very bad carriage accident in New York in 1886, and he died two years later from complications from that accident in 18 on august 14th 1888 he was buried in a mausoleum in mountain view cemetery in oakland in an area they called the millionaire's row his estate was worth 300 to 400 million at the time of his death in 1888 uh yeah okay but i gotta tell you the story i gotta tell you the story about the old and then this one first about mr crocker so mr crocker was kind of an ass Okay, tell me everything. (laughs) So this undertaker, German undertaker, he was an immigrant. He came to the United States. His name was Young. And he and his wife, Young, he and his wife worked so hard and they scrimped and they saved and they bought a little plot of land in San Francisco on California Street. And they built a little cottage with lots of windows that let in lots of light. And they built... Oh, I think I've heard this story. Was it a dollop episode? Probably. I think it was. Like, there was like, it was blocking his view or... No. Well, sort of, yes. But so they they plant this little garden and they've got this beautiful little house. And then, so Crocker and Stanford and all of his millionaire buddies decide, hey, we really like California Street. It looks out it's got this gorgeous view so they all started buying up land all of these multi-millionaires start buying up all this land around california street and they actually renamed the street knob hill i'm pretty sure i've heard this story i'm before. sure you have because it's a crazy story so they built they buy up all this land and they go to jung and they say hey we want to buy your land and jung says no there's actually two stories they blocked that. it out so there was no sunlight yes yes okay okay so at first, there's two stories. Some one of the stories says that Young Crocker offered Young six thousand dollars. Young said, "No, I want twelve thousand dollars." Crocker said, "How about nine thousand dollars?" And Young said, "No," and left. There's another story that Crocker said, "I'll give you three thousand dollars." Young said, "Yes," but then kept changing his mind and saying, "Oh, now I want six. Oh, now I want nine. Oh, now I want 12. And once he got to twelve, Crocker got mad and walked away. So both men are kind of being asses. I mean, they're both being jerks. It depends on which story you believe. Because in right. the first one, in the first case, I don't think Young is being an ass. No. But in the second case, he is. Yes. So, But nobody knows which one is true. Yeah. So anyway, they, the rich guys decided, hey, let's just annoy them out. So they bring in steamrollers and equipment and they build these like 
massive, massive mansions, dynamite, all kinds of construction going on all the time, day or night, because they have enough money that they can pay for day and night construction. Mm -hmm. Crocker's mansion alone was 12,000 square feet. That's about 10 times the size of my house, if you don't count the garage. That's a stupid amount of house. So he still doesn't leave. So Crocker decides, well, I'll know what I'll do. And he pays $3,000 to build a 40-foot fence around the three sides of Jung's property that border his property. It blocks out all of the sunlight, blocks out all of the cool air because this is pre-AC days. Uh, yeah. So there's no circulation going Although from it is San Francisco, at all. So. Yeah, but if there's no wind blowing there because there's a fence right next to your window. So anyway, it's he's pissed. And they make his side look beautiful. They plant ivy. And meanwhile, the Young's beautiful little garden just dies. Young decides he's going to get back at him. And he threatens to build a big old flagpole and put up a skull and crossbones on the flagpole to fly it to disrupt the view. And remember, he's an undertaker. So he also said that he was going to mount the casket and paint a sign for his business on his roof. Nice. <laughs> He didn't. But, you know, tourists started to come and look at the fence because they were talking about this constantly in the papers. Um, in October of 1877, another problem that Crocker was having was a fight with the Working Men's Party of California. And they decided to hold a protest rally up on Knob Hill to protest the railroad hiring all the Chinese people and not the American people. So, you know, that was a problem even then. I was going to be like, <clears throat> sounds familiar. Yep. So they pick it and they said, one guy, his name is Pickett. They didn't pick it. I mean, they were picketing. But, oh, I was like, you know, he's blah, blah, blah. a picketer and his name is Pickett. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Anyway, he um, went up to Crocker and he said, this fence is BS. I want it down by Thanksgiving. If you don't tear it down by Thanksgiving, I'm going to send WPC guys to come and demolish it. Well... Crocker didn't, and he didn't, and so the fence just stayed. The fence actually stayed through the death of Crocker, through the death of his wife, through the death of Jung, through the death of Jung's wife, and finally, in 1902, Jung's daughters agreed to sell the land to the Crockers for an undisclosed amount of money, and the fence was torn down in 1905. I.e., buttload of cash. Buttload of cash. Crazy, crazy stuff. Okay, that was amazing. Yeah. I love that story. I really like Crocker. And I'm I like super that excited it, that I researched him. I like that it wrapped back to a story that I already knew, didn't, but didn't know it was about him. Right, yeah. Okay, so tell me your other story. So, okay, so I wake up this morning and I realize I only have half of my story done. And so I need caffeine to get the rest done. So I cruise down from my tiny little town to a coffee shop in another town that's not Starbucks, but is still a pretty cool coffee it's shop. It's a regional coffee shop, right? It's still or pretty cool. It's yes, California it and Oregon. It's California and Oregon and some of Washington and some of... Arizona, I think. Anyway, it's awesome. And the kids are always like, all the kids that work in there are always like talking and very friendly and blah, blah, blah. So I pull through and I'm smiling and peppy because that's who I am. They were playing, oh, they were playing Material Girl. Material. So material. I pulled up and I'm like, oh my God, I tried out for cheerleading in seventh grade to this song. So we started talking and he was like, what are you going to do today? And I was telling him about our podcast. And so of course he's got to tell all the people in there. So pretty soon I'm talking to five or six like 20 somethings about our podcast and blah 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 and I'm like it's not out yet but it's gonna do this and you know so I'm pretty much I'm going home drink beer all day and da, da, da. and as I'm pulling away they all went we'll listen we'll listen let us know 
And as I'm pulling away, I hear the young girl who's outside say to the kid who's inside, oh my God, I hope I'm that cool when I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) So we're cool. (laughs) But we're old. (laughs) It's been verified. I'm just going to stick with the good part of it. We're cool. Right, right. It was, you know, it was like compliment-ish. I don't think she even meant it. Mm -mm. Like, anyway, she's just 20, and here comes this old lady. She thought it was cool. Right. She thought it was cool. I'm just old. So I hope she can be this cool when she's (laughs) old, too. I hope she listens. (laughs) I think it's a great compliment. She meant it with her heart. She did, yes, because we're cool. So speaking of cool, what cool thing are you telling me? So it's pretty terrible, actually. (laughs) Oh, no. So millionaires doing something terrible? No, say it ain't so. This is even more terrible than you can imagine. <laughs> oh no! Okay. It, it's dark. So I'm going to tell you about Isai Sagawa. He is a Japanese murderer. Oh, that's that's a name, Isai Sagawa. Isai Sagawa makes more sense when you say he's Japanese. Yeah, Wikipedia. There's still the murderer issue. Yeah. So Wikipedia lists Isai Sagawa's occupation as quote unquote. Cannibal, murderer, writer, commentator, public speaker, and actor. Okay, whoa, 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 Because <laughs> occupation is listed as cannibal. Cannibal, murderer, writer, commentator, public speaker, and actor. How do you get money to be a cannibal and a murderer? Well, I mean, how is that listed as your occupation? Is there a box for that on the IRS form? I don't know. I don't. Okay. Yeah. Because I know I have to put my occupation on my taxes, and I've never seen a murderer box. Or a cannibal. <laughs> so, like I said, this is actually a terrible story. <laughs> yes. But it it's interesting. Okay. So he was born in 1949 to wealthy parents, a.k.a. he's a millionaire. Millionaire. He was a millionaire. Hence the disgusting drink. Right. Uh, he was born premature and suffer- suffered from numerous childhood illnesses. He only grew to 4'9 as an adult. Oh. So he was a small man. And he viewed himself as sickly. Whether he, as an adult, whether he was truly sickly or whether it was just his perception, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. But that's how he viewed himself. Well, that's not a very good view of yourself. He said that his first cannibalistic urges occurred in first grade and that was because he saw the upper thigh of another boy in his class i'm making a face i'm just first grade he wanted to eat a little boy's thigh that's what he claims that was his first urge of cannibalism wow he also engaged in bestiality as a child he says okay um none of this is truly verified this is coming from him right uh, at 23 years old, he went as far as to follow a German woman home with intent to cannibalize her. He waited until she fell asleep, broke into her apartment, and because he was 4'9 and she was a tall woman, they don't give specify what, uh-huh. she was able to fight him off. Well, thank goodness. Yes. Um, he was charged with attempted rape. He never made it known to the authorities what his actual intentions were because it wasn't rape. It was right, cannibalism. Right, but he's not going to say, hey, I wanted it munch on her. Right. And not in the fun way. Um, in 1977, he began studying at the Sorbonne in Paris. Okay, so he's smart. He's smart. He's rich. And he still wants to eat people. Yes. Did he get dropped on his head? Don't know. Uh... He claims that while he was in Paris, 
almost every night he would bring home a prostitute and then try to shoot them but every time his fingers froze and he couldn't pull the trigger so he's not successful at being a murderer he's not (laughs) well (laughs) i tried to shoot them i just couldn't well that's good i guess In 1981, it was June 11th, he invited one of his classmates who was, uh, I believe she was a Dutch exchange student, Renee Hartvelt, to dinner, and he did this under the pretext that they were working on a class assignment. Okay. But his real plan was to kill her and eat her. Okay. He invited her to dinner, like, at a restaurant or at his At his apartment. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's like, come over, we'll have dinner, which I think meant he'll have dinner. Ew! (laughs) She wasn't going to plan on being fed. Um, So he purposely selected her for her health and beauty, which were characteristics that he believed he lacked. And he thought that by cannibalizing her, he could absorb her energy. Oh, so he's one of those cannibals. Yes, kind of like the vampire of Sacramento. Okay. Drinking the blood. Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, health and beauty, maybe she tastes good. Maybe her her thigh is properly marbled. Nope. He wanted to be healthy and beautiful. Okay. I always do that by eating healthy, beautiful meat. She was sitting at the desk in his apartment with her back to him. Because they're working on homework. Because they're working on homework. She was reading some poetry, and he shot her in the neck with a hunting rifle, and then he fainted. He's really not very good at this. He's really not. Oh, my goodness. Um, He came to and raped her. Oh. Tried to cannibalize her, but he was unable to cut into the skin. He's not able to cut into the skin? No. So he left to go to the store to buy a butcher knife. So he just, is she dead? Yes. Okay, good. I mean, not good, but, you know, you know what I mean. So he just leaves her there and he goes to buy a butcher knife because he didn't prepare with a knife he didn't know he would need a knife to cut a person right i can't imagine that our skin is very easy to cut into i mean it's not like cowhide or anything but still you'd need you know you need a knife knife so for the next two days he fed on various parts of the body oh my god saved her in the fridge as you do and for the most part he ate the flesh raw that's worse. Yes. Ew. Yes. Not like Dahmer who had actual like recipes. <laughs> He's going to get worms. You can't eat raw meat. So after oh my that. God, that's disgusting. After that, he put the remains into two suitcases. And what did he have left? Well, like all the extra stuff like that you make hot dogs out of, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he put the hot dog meat in a suitcase. Okay. He filled up two suitcases. He took her to... That tells me that he's not a very good butcher. He's not very good. Because I think you could take somebody's entire body and put it in Aside one suitcase. Aside from studying literature at the Sorbonne, I don't think he's good at anything. <laughs> okay, um, where is he taking his suitcases full of So he took her to a park that had a lake, and he was going to dump her in the lake, and he was seen by numerous people there dragging these suitcases, and he just looked very strange and suspicious. So yeah, people called the authorities, the French cops. They ended up seeing him with the suitcases. They arrested him, and he was put in jail for the time being. For the time being, so he doesn't stay there. Well, so 
Basically, because I'm like, yay, he got caught. Yeah, he got caught. His millionaire father got him a high-priced lawyer. Oh, I forgot about the millions of dollars. Yeah, and he was tried in the French court. He was found legally insane. He was ordered to be held indefinitely in a mental institution. Okay, that's a good thing. He did go to. While in the French mental institution, the French authorities decided that they didn't want to bear the expense of housing him forever and that he should be returned to Japan. That makes complete sense. So he was deported to Japan and he was immediately committed to Matsuzawa Hospital. Okay. And they assumed that that's what, how it would end. But in Japan, the psychologist that saw him declared him sane and that the urges were all of sexual nature and that he wasn't insane legally. They says that since he was sane, he was able to check himself out of the hospital. He did that in 1986. (laughs) Japan legally was not able to hold him because the charges in France had been dropped. Oh, shit. Because basically France was like, take him back to Japan. Yeah. Drop the charges. We're done with him. So after that's crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy. So he was never convicted. He's a free man to this day after he was released in 1986. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, he's still alive. Okay. I'll well, continue the story. But uh, is he still, I mean, I'm assuming he's still fantasizing about people eating people's thighs. Supposedly, but so after he was released, he um, was kind of like a pseudo celebrity in Japan. He was sought out to be a guest speaker and commentator. What would you want to talk to him about? Cannibalism. Because that's a normal topic. Yeah. <clears throat> oh uh, my goodness, people are twisted. He appeared in... Uh, I say on my Murder in History podcast. Yeah. <laughs> he appeared in a Japanese film. He wrote books. He was a restaurant reviewer for a Japanese magazine. That's insane. And then pretty much lived the rest of his life kind of being that and lived off of that money, um, plus his parents' money. But in 2005, his parents died. They both died. Uh And I didn't find out why. He had to move into public housing. He's on public assistance. So did they not leave him their money? He, no. Or did he he, blow through it? They blew through it. He had to pay off their debtors. And had nothing left and had to move into public assistance, which one article I looked at but didn't read the complete story of. Uh Pretty much the headline was, like, he got his just desserts because now he's living on public assistance. I'm like, oh my god, that doesn't equate. That's insulting. That does not equate. No, that's insulting to so so many people. Yeah, you can kill. Oh, poor you. You're poor. But yeah, that's the story of Isai Sagawa. he, He only ate one person. He only ate that we know of. At one point, he was um, pretty vigorously traveling around the world with these two women, even went to the United States and Canada. Oh, my goodness. And although this information isn't great, so it could just be slipping through the cracks, uh-huh. nobody knows where these women are to this day. Whoa. But it could just be because it was long enough ago that you don't easily track people like you do right. now. Right, right. So, no. Oh, my goodness. No- so, he's just hanging out in Japan on public assistance, living his little perverted life. Yes. Awesome. Yes. And you can see, if you go on YouTube, there's like numbers of interviews you can watch with him. Oh my goodness. I need to go watch one. Yeah. The podcast I listened to had excerpts from, I don't know if it was a video, but some sort of interview. Crazy. Yeah, for sure. And 
So when I was originally looking at topics for Millionaire, Uh I was going to do something more along the lines, even though I don't like the story, but like the Robert Durst kind of thing. Okay. But then I... No, this is... Yeah, I saw this. I'm like, I cannot even believe this. I can't believe he's just out and free and living his life in Japan. Yeah. That's crazy. It's crazy. Okay. Don't travel to Japan if you've got chunky thighs. Don't travel to Paris if you have chunky thighs either. Oh, that's right, because he's, does yeah. he, is he in Paris and now? we're not experts. We're just drunks. We'll see you next time. So what if people like this and they want to talk to us? They can contact us. There's How? a number of ways. Okay, what? So you can email us at crimeintimeotr at gmail.com, and we also would be happy to have your cocktail suggestions. Yes, please send us cocktail ideas. Um, you can talk to us on Facebook at... Facebook at Crime and Time on the Rocks. We're on Instagram too. We're at Crime and Time, and Child Number One handles our Instagram it's for adorable. the most part. So. It's adorable. Um, and Twitter, we're at Crime and Time. So tweet at us, or you know, whatever you do. Whatever you do. Thank you for listening.